listening to WP Radio, a podcast from the OIAA, and I'm your host, Terry Doherty. In each episode, I have in-depth interviews with industry experts and get to know them better, along with finding out their perspective on everything in the industry. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. On today's episode, I had an opportunity to sit down with Aaron Durant of Borden Ladner Gervais, and we discussed the covenant to insure. So let's dive right in. All right, uh, it's WP Radio. It's Terry Doherty. Uh, today we have Aaron Durant on of Borden Ladner Gervais, and we're in the auto office. Um, Aaron, thank you very much for being on the podcast today, and uh, you know, uh, welcome to WP Radio. Thanks for having me. I've been listening to the podcast, and I'm honored to be a guest. Well, Aaron, uh, before we get started, let's just get a little bit about your background. Uh, where are you from? You know, how'd you get into law? And just give me the, you know, the 10 second version. Sure. I'm originally from Prescott, Ontario. I'm from a family of non-lawyers, uh, lots of plumbers and nurses, nurses and things like that. So uh, law school was a bit of a an accident for me. I graduated with a degree in history and didn't really know what to do after that. So I applied to law school and fortunately I, I enjoyed it and ended up at some good firms. Now, um, when you talked about, or when you say you went to, uh, to university, did you go to law school at the same university that you went to university originally? Uh, no. So I first uh, went to the University of Ottawa for my history degree and I got um, master's in history. And then I ended up going to uh, Queen's University for law school. Oh, okay. So uh, down in Kingston. Yep. Excellent. And uh, where'd you end up after that? After that, I summered and articled at Borden Ladner Gervais here in Ottawa. And after articling, I wasn't sure if the big firm life was the life for me or not. So I ended up spending three years in Barrie, Ontario, working at a small insurance firm there with a guy named Dan Dooley. Uh, the firm's Dooley Lucenti. And I stayed there, uh, as I said, about three years until Mr. Dooley was getting ready to retire. And uh, when he started talking about retiring, I started thinking about coming back to Ottawa. Um no thought of going on and carrying his practice on at that point, or were you just too new? And At that point, I figured as a third-year lawyer, not too many insurance companies would uh, would send me their business, so I thought I needed a bit more a bit more guidance and uh, some assistance in that regard, so I ended up actually coming back to BLG here in Ottawa, where I articled, and because uh, I knew a lot of the lawyers here and, uh, and thought I could get some good experience from them. So um, when, how long have you been out? So... I'm in uh, about my sixth year, so it'll be six years this June. Oh, okay. So your call was 2012 then, yeah. I guess. Okay, cool. All right. Um, so what type of uh, litigation or law do you practice? So I do primarily insurance litigation, so I do a lot of personal injury claims. I do some um, commercial litigation. I do um, some environmental claims, professional negligence. Um, I've done a lot of title insurance work, especially when I was in Northern Ontario. And uh, what title insurance is, is basically property claims, um, dealing with uh, easements, running across properties, neighbor disputes, things like that. So uh, if you, n- you name it in the insurance world, I've probably done it at least once. Now, uh, title insurance, that's kind of interesting. Is that like Stuart Title, those kind of insurance companies? Exactly. So um, when you purchase a house nowadays, most real estate lawyers recommend that you purchase title insurance. And what title insurance does is it covers a lot of um, searches that lawyers used to do in the real estate process. And title insurance has made having real estate lawyers a lot cheaper um, and it also provides you some insurance coverage if something goes wrong with the actual title of the property after closing. So th- the usual disputes are if you think you own um, a portion of land and a fence has been erected on the wrong spot and you act- and a, a dispute arises about what's the actual bo- uh, you know, boundary of the property. There's also coverage for things like uh, in cottage country, if you have a driveway that accesses your property, but it goes through a neighbor's property, and your neighbor all of a sudden starts blocking your access, uh, typically title insurance would cover any litigation costs um, that deal with that. So like an easement or something that was already agreed to previously. Exactly. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, And I understand that you were the former chair of the Young Lawyers Division of the Canadian Defence Lawyers. I was. So I did that uh, last year. I've been on their Young Lawyers Committee for a few years. And uh, primarily we do educational events for 
lawyers, social events for insurance lawyers, as well as adjusters. Sometimes we do joint events with OIAA divisions and things of that nature. Now, is that, um, is that for when you say young lawyers? I'm assuming that's just new lawyers. Yeah, so I think they classify young as, as lawyers within their first 10 years okay. of call. Um, so it's a way to get to know others in the profession. Canadian Defence Lawyers as an organization is open to, to all lawyers, so we also work with the usual uh, Canadian Defence Lawyers Board of um, board of Directors to organize events as well. So it's kind of like the same thing, but for the plaintiff's bar on the other side. Yeah, so the, the plaintiff's bar is primarily uh, dealt with through OATLA, and sometimes we'll work with OATLA to organize joint events so that the defence lawyers and the plaintiff's lawyers can get to know each other in a more social setting rather than, you know, the usual courtroom adversarial setting. Sure. Um, yeah, so that's one of the things Canadian Defence Lawyers does. So um, just we'll talk a little bit about BLG. Um, so it's a big firm here in Ottawa. It's probably, I, th I would say, it's the biggest firm in Ottawa? Uh, BLG, I think, we're the second biggest firm in Ottawa. Uh, nationally, we're the biggest, uh, the biggest national firm here in Canada. We've got offices in uh, Montreal, Ottawa, Toronto, uh, Calgary, and Vancouver. Yeah. Okay. And what about you? Where's your practice take you? You go uh, all over Ontario, or are you just primarily parts of Ontario? What do you do? Uh, wherever the insurers send me, uh, primarily <laughs> we're, we're east of Belleville, uh, all the way to the Quebec border, um, north, uh, I have a lot of files in Thunder Bay, Sudbury, uh, Sault Ste. Marie, um, so it really just depends on what our area is for a particular insurer and, and where they're willing to, to fly me to. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm excited to talk to you today about the covenant to insure. And I know I've talked to other lawyers on it, and we've actually had another podcast on it. But I want to take a different twist on it today. And I wanted to kind of talk about um, landlord and tenant because with regards to strip malls and that kind of stuff as opposed to the contractor, the typical contractor mm -hmm. that we all think about. But uh, if you can kind of tell me where we're at with landlord or with the covenant to insure and uh, kind of just give us a bit of a brief overview first, that would be great. Sure. So, you know, you'll find covenants to insure in most commercial contracts. Um, and the problem with them is that the, the lawyers that draft these contracts typically aren't litigation lawyers, they're, they're corporate lawyers. So they're people who aren't necessarily in a courtroom. So when they're drafting them, they're not always keeping you know, future litigation in mind. Um, and some of them reuse clauses for, for decades without changing them. So um, you, know, you can find them, as you mentioned, in, in the commercial contracts for leases. You can find them in construction contracts. So if you're involved in a claim involving a construction site, uh, there's often very complex construction uh, documents w which will have um, indemnity and insurance clauses in it. But basically what the, the covenant to insure is, is a promise made in a, in a contract, in, in any contract really, where one party has undertaken to either add um, and the other party as an additional insured to their policy or even as a named insured to their policy. Um, and, and the issue with that is, um, and it gets litigated quite a bit, is sometimes uh, they don't actually follow through on their contractual promise to do that, which results in litigation. Um, the other way it comes up in litigation is when it is a person is added as an additional insured, but there might be an issue with coverage and what exactly the insurance policy itself covers. So it's interesting. So let's talk about the, the first part of it. The, uh, adding the person as an additional insured or a named insured, mm -hmm. there, there's got to be a difference between the two or they wouldn't say it. So what's the difference of being a named insured and an additional insured? It really depends on the insurance policy itself and what the coverages are. Um, some insurance policies, um, if you're an additional insured, they'll be separate provisions that apply or some, or some provisions to the insurance contract that don't apply to an additional insured. You know, for example, if you're just an additional insured, you're probably not responsible for paying the premiums, right? Someone else is paying the premiums and you're just benefiting, you know, from having the, the coverage itself. So it, it depends, you know, policy by policy, company by company, I think. Um, and usually being an additional insured will get you uh, what you want in terms of being, uh, you know, obligated to defend a lawsuit, for example. 
So it may give you indemnity or defense, but not indemnity. Yeah, that's right. Okay. That's right. Um, all right. And then let's talk about the, you know, where we're going to find these. So you said we're going to find them in basically every commercial contract. In a lot of them. So, you know, most commercial contracts drafted by a lawyer, um, there's usually a discussion had between the parties about, okay, you know, how are we going to assign risk in this, in this agreement? So um, if you look at a strip mall, for example, um, the landlord of the strip mall obviously wants to limit their liability for any falls that happen inside the tenant's premises because the landlord's not going to be in there every day to make sure it's safe. Um, but in the same situation, um, if you have a parking lot that's shared by a bunch of tenants, um, the tenant might not want to be responsible for dealing with insurance on the parking lot. Um, so, and a lot of times, um, it's hard to say that, you know, the landlord's always going to be indemnifying the tenant or the tenant's always going to be indemnifying the landlord in these cases because it really depends on who has the more bargaining power when they're negotiating the terms of the lease. So, um, you know, you can imagine if a company like uh, Sobeys is trying to negotiate a lease, they have quite a bit of bargaining power because they're a huge commercial tenant and everyone sure. wants them in their plaza. But if you have, you know, just a a family-run barbershop who's trying to negotiate a lease and negotiate these terms, um, they may end up with different clauses and different things that are covered in terms of insurance and indemnities. Um, so it's almost like a, a negative option Ooh. for some people as opposed to... Yeah, so you end up, just like any term in a, in a lease, you end up bargaining about these clauses a little bit. And, you know, sometimes um, the parties care more about other things and they, they just sort of don't pay much attention to these clauses, uh, which is where you get into some litigation later on, I think. But um, yeah, it's just like any other deal. So um, it's hard whenever you give advice to adjusters to say, okay, this, you know, usually this is what it's going to say because you really don't know until you get your hands on the contract. So what should an adjuster kind of be looking for when they get a new claim involving a landlord and a tenant? Mm -hmm. so, um, so if you imagine a claim involving... Um, a couple different stores in a plaza. So let's say there's a slip and fall that happens um, at a strip mall um, in between two stores on the sidewalk. And neither of the stores own the plaza, you know, it's owned by somebody else. Sure. Um, in, in a situation like that, you would want um, the leases for both stores with the landlord because just because one of the leases say one thing, the other leases may say something else involving the same plaza. So you need the contracts involved between the parties. And in a landlord-tenant situation, it's called a lease. Yep. Um, you also want copies of the insurance policies. So not, your own, not only your own policy, um, you also want a copy of the actual policy um, for the other party as well. So um, if you're trying to say that your insured should have been named as an additional insured to uh, either a landlord or a tenant, you'd want their policy as well. First to check, you know, is your insured also named as an additional insured on their policy? And uh, if it's not, you still want a copy of the policy to see, okay, well, if they were named as an additional insured, would there be coverage or not? So what about the case where... Um there is a slip and fall. It's outside of my unit, but I'm not responsible because, say, the and I'm a tenant. We'll just say I'm a tenant here. Yep. And the landlord has this covenant to insure me under their contract, but never does it. So yep. that must happen a lot. Happens all the time. And uh, the reason why I think it happens all the time is leases tend to be long, complicated documents that I'm not sure people read. <laughs> sure. So, yeah, you know. You flip to the back and flip sign. To the, flip to the back and sign. So, um, and a lot of them, the obligation to add uh, yourself as an additional insured um, It'll also say you have to submit proof of insurance, you know, proof it's been done. But I, I also see that parties don't ask for proof that it's been done. So in that situation, um, what you basically have is a breach of contract claim, which insurance adjusters aren't used to dealing with. You know, you're used to dealing with negligence claims. Um, but what happens when the matter gets referred to counsel is, um, you know, we go ahead and defend the insured and we... Uh, basically sue in the same lawsuit, either in a cross-claim or in a third-party claim, alleging that we were supposed to be, our insured was supposed to be named as on an additional insured to another policy. And if that had been done, um, you know, they would be paying the defense costs. And 
what, what can happen in those cases is you don't have to wait until the end of the case to have that issue decided. You can bring a motion within the action for a declaration that there, a breach of contract happened. You know, we're entitled to defense costs and perhaps indemnity at the end of the day. Is that something that an adjuster could bring to you and say, hey, listen, it's right in their contract. They have this covenant to ensure. Mm -hmm. It appears they haven't done it. Mm -hmm. Can we do a summary judgment motion? Or is there is there a, like a way to fast track that so you don't have to do all of the discoveries and everything? Exactly. So you can do it right at the start. And you can do it by a summary judgment motion or a motion under what's called Rule 21. And Rule 21 is used to determine a question of law. And, and the reason you can do it up front is you don't usually need much evidence. You're not going to need witnesses to, to testify. Usually all you need is the contract and proof that the other insurance policy doesn't have um, the party as a named insured on it. And, you know, all the judges do is they look at the contracts and they say, yep, you know, you were supposed to do this and you didn't. Now, there's a few excuses that you know, can be, be thrown in there to try to make it a bit murky. What's the typical excuses um, you've seen? You know, sometimes they'll say that, you know, the parties weren't really aware of it and they carried on for years this way. Or sometimes they'll say, you know, we, we know the written contract says X, but, you know, we had actually agreed to something else on the side and we never reduced it to writing. So things like that can make it a bit more difficult. But even in those cases, I think judges will be able to decide the matter on a, on a motion early. Um, and then what happens is um, a breach of contract claim is essentially a claim for damages. So what you get when you're successful is any damages incurred as a result of the breach. So you would get all your legal defense costs back. Um, and you would also get, um, if you're successful, a declaration that going forward, all of the legal costs need to be paid as well. Okay. And, um, and they can get actually expensive because um, you end up having, you know, let's say it's a case for landlord-tenant, and it was the landlord that was supposed to have an additional insurance clause for the tenant for the parking lot, for example. Um, you could have a, a situation where... Um, those two people can't be re represented by the same lawyer because they have conflicting interests, you know. Uh, the landlord wants the tenant to be at fault. The tenant wants the landlord to be at fault. So they can end up actually having to pay for two separate lawyers, uh, which you can imagine is expensive. So at some point, do they not just decide, hey, it's probably better that we don't have conflicting interests and yeah. kind of move on? Yeah, so you end up getting uh, sometimes agreements made between the parties that, you know, no matter what happens, you know, this is how the indemnity is going to work and we'll have one lawyer deal with the case. So um, that usually ends up happening, um, you know, after the motion is won, you know, the parties sit down and try to negotiate something if they can. And, and there's, some, there's some circumstances where um, certain insureds take a tough line on that and they always want their own lawyer and, and they're entitled to it. So if you have a, a big corporation who was supposed to be added as an additional insured and they weren't, um, like a municipality, you know, they have their usual litigation lawyers that they want and, and they're entitled to, to have them and to have somebody else pay for them. Unless you agree to step in and cover indemnify them. Yeah, yeah, unless, yeah, unless that happens. Okay. Um, let's talk about um, where the landlord's coming after the tenant for, say, a subrogated claim for damages within the unit or to, like, common area. Mm -hmm. So maybe a water damage. Mm -hmm. And then, but there's that covenant to insure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, so those are tough to talk about in general terms just because each contract will say different things. Yeah. So, you know, if there's covenants to insured involved and, um, you know, there may be a situation where the one insurance policy is supposed to cover everything anyway, um, so that could happen. You can also see um, waiver of subrogation rights in, in commercial contracts and landlord-tenant contracts. So, you know, in that case, you know, one party will agree to not only, you know, indemnify or cover defense costs, but they might agree not to subrogate against the other party too. So if you don't get the contracts and, you know, you pay a loss and you're like, okay, well, we can subrogate against you know, whoever it is, there, there could be something in the contract that says you can't do that. Yeah, we see that a lot in... Um uh, condo agreements mm -hmm. where they're, uh, they've uh, got an anti-subrogation, kind of a waiver of subrogation mm -hmm. between unit owners except yeah. for arson or fraud. Yeah. Right? And I think a lot of people miss that. 
Yeah, and and condo is a great example because it's it's a they can result in large claims if you have you know a fire or if you have a water damage claim that goes multiple units. Yeah, and you know each individual insurer is going to be covering you know paying for their own insured within their unit, and everyone's always trying to point a finger at okay who can we sue for this, and you know if there's waiver of subrogation rights against either the condo building or or, or whatever it is, um, you can get into trouble. And, and then what can happen is, let's say there's a, a water leak in a condo unit, and the reason for it wasn't because of the actual unit's neglig- unit owner's negligence. It was because they were having construction work done, and a plumber you know, screwed something up. So you could see where you could still subrogate against the plumber for the work, but then the plumber might sue or third-party claim against the unit or owner. owner. So yeah. so you can get in, in pretty complex situations, but you know, I think when you're adjusting, getting copies of of all the contracts early on is gonna save you some work down the road because you don't want to start chasing you know, one person, okay, like, let's start a, a subrogated claim against the unit holder when, you know, there's there's a clause in there that may prevent it. So if you get your hands on the contract soon, um, and usually you don't need to read the entire uh, contract, there's usually a section that's called insurance and indemnity where you'll find most of this information. Um, I think it s- could save people a lot of work down the road instead of just chasing rabbits that may end up not uh, not, not being able to be caught. <laughs> So what happens when you miss that mm-hmm. in a case and you forget about it? Is there, I'm sure that must happen, right? Yeah. So, you know, I see a few things. Sometimes people forget to ask, which is fine. Um, as long as they come to, they retain counsel fairly quickly, we, we can get it. Um, oftentimes people also think they have what they need, but the contract's the wrong year. So it's important to remember that the contracts you need are the contracts that were in force on the date of loss, um, not necessarily when the claim was reported. So, you know, sometimes we end up with a slip and fall that happens in, you know, September of 2014, but it, you know, but doesn't, notice letter doesn't come in for a year later. So sometimes the contracts that are assembled might be the ones for the following year. Um, so you have to make sure the contract is dated, you know, for the, and covers the date of loss. Um, so, you know, the more work you can do on the front end, the more you're going to save on legal fees because we're not having to chase around and, and get it from the, the insured ourselves. What about a leak, a slow leak that happens over many policy terms mm-hmm. before it's noticed? Do you need to get the contract for all of the policy terms or are we literally looking at discoverability? Is there any case law out there on that? That's interesting. So, um... I would say in that situation, it would be when it was discovered um, would usually be the only one you would need when the, you know, because most policies are, you know, when, when it's discovered. Um, you know, in some cases, you may need, if the negligent event actually happened, you know, five years before it was discovered, you may actually need both you know, the year that the negligent event happened and the year it was discovered because some policies are are different in terms sure. of that yeah, way. Sure, there's some changes. Yeah. I mean, especially, and I mean, what I mean is the contract as well. Yeah. Because the, the contract may have changed too, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, who knows? Maybe they took the covenant to insure out. Yeah, and, and sometimes you might have... Um, you know, annual annual maintenance obligations. You know, if if we if we're not if we go outside the landlord tenant situation, and and let's say you're talking about, um, you mentioned a leak. Let's mention imagine it was an oil leak, and you have a company that had does annual maintenance on the tank, and there's contracts every year. Yeah. You know, you can get into situations where maybe the obligations change year to year, or maybe the company who was doing the maintenance changed every year. Um, so what I usually tell people is, is you can't, you can never assemble too much information. Yeah. And, uh, especially when it comes to contracts over, over various, various years. So you think it's better to ask for everything and then just kind of sort it out. Yeah, for sure. What you really need, right? For sure. Because it also saves some time in the discovery process. So a lot of times, um, you know, we'll get the adjuster's file and we'll get some of the investigation work that's done. And, you know, we have enough to do our defense and we have enough to, you know, to, to defend the claim or advance the claim if we're, we're subrogating. But then when you get to the examinations for discovery, the other lawyers are always asking, okay, well, are there any other contracts? Are there any, you know, is there anything additional? You know, can we have contracts going back five years? So if you get more stuff up front, even if you think it's only, 
a bit relevant, you may end up saving yourself time and money in the discovery process, which is the most expensive part of the litigation yeah. process by far. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Archon Forensic Engineers. Since 1965, Archon has been Canada's premier provider of forensic engineering services to the insurance industry. With expertise in mechanical failures, collision reconstructions, fires and explosions, structural damage assessments, biomechanical analysis of injuries and electrical malfunctions, Archon's engineers provide comprehensive support for property and casualty claims. For more information, please visit www.archonforensics.com or to speak with an expert, please call one 272 Six six seven one. Now let's get back to the show. Again, it, when we we're talking about these contracts, is it, <clears throat> is there a standard one that people typically use, or are they just piecemeal from old contracts that you've seen, or is there is there something out there where you can actually go and for you know adjusters they can say to their insureds that are thinking about doing this or making changes that you should be using this in your contracts? So they're all completely different. And um, I was, I give some advice within the firm to our leasing department. So we work for large retailers mostly and also municipalities and, and other, you know, just smaller organizations too when they're drafting leases. And each lease is completely different from one to the other. Now, some lawyers have standard insurance and indemnity clauses that they like to see in certain situations, but um, you know, there wouldn't be one place where I could send you to say, okay, this is what's usually used because literally each one's different. And you can even get into cases where parties just draft it up themselves. You know, you don't need to go to a lawyer to, to make a, a legally binding contract. So you know, if, if you're just the owner of a small building you know, if you, if you were to go out and buy a building, uh, you know, downtown Kingston, and you wanted to le rent it out to someone to use as a, a doctor's office or something, sure. you know, you would probably go see a lawyer because you're a smart guy. But a lot of people will just say, you know, they'll draft up their own little agreement, and that will be the deal. You know, you're going to pay me X amount of money in exchange for using the building, and you're going to be responsible for the hydro. Uh, you may think about insurance because you're an insurance adjuster, yep. uh, but you may not. So, you know, you may write up your own clause about insurance. Um, so you never know what you're going to find. Now, is there something in the covenant that requires there to be an exchange of money? Like what creates this covenant? So it'll, it'll be a term in the contract. So, you know, in exchange for, you know, the amount of money being paid for the lease or in exchange for being able to use the premises, you know, this is what you're agreeing to do. And should money be part of that covenant, though? So part of your money, your rent should be paid towards insurance? Is there, is there something in that or no? No, no. It doesn't so that, have to be that specific? It doesn't have to be that specific. So if it's part of another larger contract, there needs to be some consideration exchanged and, or money exchanged for the overall contract to be in effect. Um, you learn that sort of first-year law school. In order for a contract to be enforceable, you know, you have to get something in return. Sure. Um, so, but it doesn't have to be specific clause by clause, you know, in the insurance clause, it doesn't have to say, you know, in exchange for the payment of $1, you're going to add me as an additional insured. You know, you don't need to be that uh, specific as long as it's part of an otherwise legally binding contract. Okay. Um, well, let's talk about some cases. Mm -hmm. Um, can you give me some cases that you uh, or BLG has been involved in with regards to covenants? So so we've been involved in, in a number, and um, a lot of them actually get settled, you know, at a court. So I'm not going to talk about specific ones that have, have, have settled, but we'll say in, in general terms, um, reasonable lawyers are often able to work this out. Sure. Um, so if we have a contract that says, you know, there should be coverage, um, often the first thing we'll do is we'll ask for the endorsement to see if our insured is an additional insured. Um, if we are, a lot of times we just say, why aren't you handling the defense? Sure. And if we're dealing with a reasonable lawyer and a reasonable insured on the other side, often that's the end of it. So those cases aren't very exciting. Um, the more difficult ones are the ones where we're supposed to be added, our insured is supposed to be added as an additional insured to another policy and we're not. Now, that being said, yeah. can you still approach them and say, hey, listen, we should have been, instead of going through all this litigation, why don't you go back to your insurer, have them take a look at it, 
and they should have been, so let's go ahead and do that. Yeah, so, so we can do that, and I find different companies take different approaches to that. And, and the reason is this. Um, the error of not adding somebody as an additional insured isn't the insurance company's mistake. It's, it's their insured's mistake when they applied for the policy. So, you know, they were supposed to add somebody else as an additional insured. You know, how their insurance company has no idea about that. So the actual breach is a breach made by, by the insured, by the party. And the problem with, and it's a breach of contract, and the problem with breaches of contract is most insurance policies don't cover breaches of contract. Yeah. So, you know, they cover negligence. So you're insured who's who's screwed up by not sending in, you know, to their broker that someone else needs to be an additional insured. Um, they're technically the one who's on the hook for this. So um, in terms of who's responsible for the damages and the defense costs, Typically, it's going to be the insured, not the insurer. And, you know, where you get into difficult situations, you know, as an adjuster level or as a company level, you know, you have to decide, okay, you know, are we going to make our insured actually be on the hook for this? Or is there business reasons why we're willing to assume this additional cost, even though legally we don't have to? So, you know, if you're dealing with uh, a company that has millions of dollars worth of policies for you, you know, maybe you decide, okay, you know, even though we're not legally required to do this, maybe we'll do it just so our insured doesn't have to pay their own counsel. But I, I think each company does it differently, and I think they do it differently for each individual claim. Because on a strict reading of the rights, um, if there's no coverage for breach of contract, you don't really have to help your insured out and, and pay those damages. But but when I when I think about that, you think about like the a couple of different things, material change and risk being one of them. Mm -hmm. That might be a risk you may not have wanted to take on exactly. had you been aware of it, right? Exactly. You know? Um, so so what ends up happening, let's say the insurance company is like, okay, no, you know, it's not an additional insured. Our insured screwed up. Yep. Um, we want them to, to pay for their own screw up. We're not going to take that on. We don't have to. Um, what I've seen on cases is you end up actually having two different lawyers acting for the insured. You have, um, you know, the insurance company, and then you have a different lawyer defending the breach of contract claim. Um, so I've been in cases where, you know, this is an issue and, and you're dealing with literally two lawyers for the same person. Um, and the one lawyer for the breach of contract is being paid by the insured personally. Just and any damages that flow from that is payable by the insurance or the by the insured. insured personally. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it can get pretty complicated. Yeah, and is there a way to stream that as well or no? So the easiest way to stream all of this is to deal with it as early in the litigation as possible. Um, I think a lot of these cases can be dealt with before examinations for discovery, as long as you have your hands on all the documents. Um, so you can bring a motion under Rule 20, which is summary judgment, or 21, question of law, and have it dealt with as soon as possible. And, and the other reason uh, we need to deal with it as soon as possible is um, there's recent cases, including an Ottawa case involving um, the Brook Street Hotel, um, where it was held that if you don't deal with um, this issue early, you may actually run out of time under the Ontario Limitations Act. Um, so we all know you have two years to commence a claim in tort. Let's say somebody falls at, uh, at BLG today okay. and you get a notice letter uh, next week and you come in and you start doing the investigation. And you realize at that point in time that somebody was supposed to name BLG as an additional insured and they didn't. So you discover that, you know, a week after the fall. Uh, the lawsuit doesn't happen until maybe two years down the road. But you find out about the breach of contract, you know, almost two years before. So, so technically speaking, when you discover there's a breach, you need to sue within two years of the date you discover the breach. So that clock starts ticking. So the clock can start ticking earlier than you think. So, you know, as lawyers, when we get the file in, we should be looking, okay, you know, what was the date of the loss? When did we discover there was a breach in this contract and you should be bringing your uh, claim for breach of contract within two years. Wow. Yeah. So that could even fall before when you're bringing your regular suit 
or defending your other action? Yeah, it depends. It depends. There's ways to extend it. Um, there's been some criticism about the Brook Street case that... Uh, Can we go into that one? Yeah. So, so what happened at, uh, at Brook Street, it was a, a slip and fall. Um, and we, we said we weren't going to talk about winter maintenance, but it was a... Ah, win- it's okay. But it Let's was a, talk about it because it's a pretty big case, right? Yeah. So it, it was a winter maintenance uh, contract. And uh, the Brook Street Hotel is a, a nice hotel here in, in Canada. And uh, it was exactly what we've been talking about. There was a covenant to insure... Um, short between, who? between the the contractor and the hotel. So the the contractor was supposed to add Brook Street um, as an additional insured, um, and they didn't. For what what kind of contractor was it? Uh, snow removal. Okay, so your, your typical standard. winter maintenance. Winter maintenance, and okay. um, pretty sure I was just parking lot at the Brook Street. So uh, slip and fall at the Brook Street. The um, Insurer goes out, sends an adjuster to do some investigation, take photos uh, after they get the notice letter. Um, claim ends up coming down the road. And uh, the lawsuit against the claim that was brought for breach of contract ended up being brought more than two years after they discovered that there was no covenant to insure in the contract. So as part of the investigation, the contract was obtained or could have been obtained with reasonable effort. And since they didn't realize that there was a breach or didn't sue on the breach within two years, the, the reason the motion was denied was they were found to be out of time. Now, the lawyer had tried to, tried to argue that the limitation period could be extended for a few reasons and, and the court disagreed. Now, this case, um, I understand, could be under appeal. Um, I know a notice of appeal had been filed just to consider doing an appeal. Um, I don't, I'm not personally involved in the case, so I'm not sure if the appeal is happening. But this is a case that has had, um, even lawyers stop to think, like, okay, like, you know, you have to act on these fairly quickly because if you don't, you might actually end up being out of time to, uh, to sue for breach of contract if you don't do it within the two-year period. Is it just typical the same issue within two years, serve within six months? Yep. Same protocol, so... Yeah, so, you know, most adjusters only deal with negligence claims, but the Limitations Act appear, uh, applies to all civil claims in Ontario, so, you know, any breach of contract, any fraud claim, you know, any any civil claim, other than a few exceptions for, for minors. And, sure. You know, sexual assault, there's a few different rules that apply, but generally, um, same, same rules apply. Two years, claim needs to be issued. And then six months served unless you can yeah. substitute service. Yeah, and, and if you're um, already involved in a lawsuit involving the same parties, you don't need to start a separate uh, lawsuit for breach of contract. You can deal with it within the same lawsuit. So um, the typical way I do it is, um, let's say the plaintiff sues both parties, um, Brook Street and snow removal contractor, and there's a breach of contract, you you can do it as part of your defense. So you defend, but then you also either do a cross-claim or a third-party claim about the breach of contract. So you you can have it all dealt with with, within the same action, which saves money, Um, but you have to make sure that's done within the two years. Okay, and then that being said, you've got to, what if they don't issue for two years and then you're outside the two years? So if they don't issue within the two years, not you. So say the, yeah. No. So if if the, the plaintiff, plaintiff issues yeah. at the two year mark, that yeah. leaves you outside of it. Then does it not? It, it can, but but what my, what I would argue in that case, and I have never had this case, but under the Limitations Act, you have to be aware of two things. The first thing is that you know there has been a breach, and the second thing is you have to know you know that damages has have flowed from the breach. So if you're at a point where you know, you're, you're aware that there's been a breach, but you haven't really incurred any expense yet. So let's say you've gone and just done the investigation, for example, you haven't retained counsel. You know, no damages really has flown from the breach, arguably. So, th- so that could be a way that perhaps you could get it extended because until there's a lawsuit started, there's no real duty to defend yet, and there's no real expenses being incurred. So, you know, I don't know if a court would buy that argument or not, but that would be a way to, I think, extend it further. Because otherwise, what you would have to do is is sue for breach, but then what would you win? You know, you, you would get, you know, maybe a declaration that if something happens in the future, um, you know, you have to 
uh, defend. But otherwise, it seems to me like uh, the court wouldn't like you doing that because you have sort of a, a lawsuit that doesn't get any real remedy out of it. Yeah, but see, this is where I'm going to have the problem is yeah. I'm seeing more and more issues with plaintiff lawyers waiting till the basically the 11th hour of the two-year limitation. Yeah. They issue it on the day before. So mm-hmm. so you're literally two years less a day. They issue. Yeah. And you don't defend for four months. Yeah. Now you're two years and four months beyond it. So you're literally four months beyond the limitation. Yeah. Could you be found outside of the limitation for that? Well, and I and I wonder if that's part of what happened in the Brook Street case is, is they got really railroaded by how late the claim got served. Um, but I think you could... I think you could argue that because the claim wasn't served on you until later, the clock should start running later. And and, and the breach of contract claim may not necessarily come into being known the same day as the fall. Typically, you're going to discover that as part of your investigation when you get the notice letter. So, you know, let's say the fall happens today and you do your investigation in six months. It would start running based on Brook Street you know, when you do the investigation six months later. So you should usually have a a bit of time, but it could get really tight. And Um, and especially on how the judge or they're actually just, they assess it too, right? And it's it's all based on how they assess it, right? Yeah, so each judge is going to assess each case differently. And I think um, I do a lot of limitations cases in my professional liability practice. So I represent um, other lawyers, for example, when, when they get sued. And, uh, for missing the limitation? And sometimes it's for missing a limitation. So there's lots of arguments you can use to try to extend the limitation beyond the two-year mark. And one of it is is that you, know, you haven't really discovered the full nature of the claim or the damages, even though you've used due diligence until later. So I think the argument that, okay, you, know, you become aware of the breach, but you don't really know that damages are going to flow to the breach from until later might might help in these situations but i think the key on a, a limitations motion is to show that you know you've done due diligence you looked at the contracts you know you, you can't just argue well um, i never got the contract i didn't look at it you know i didn't look at it until later so y- you can't extend the limitation period by not looking at it so. But are the courts looking for us more than to really issue that breach of trust claim and sit on it? Uh, so bre- no. So because um, that seems kind of no. backwards, right? So yeah. I mean, maybe if the courts got filled with all these breach of trust claims, <laughs> they might change their mind and say it's an extra year, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the breach of contract claims. I think sorry, um, breach of contract. That, I think I okay. said breach of trust. But that's that's breach the thing of contract. Too. Yeah. So the breach of contract claims. You know, we're not just going to go running out now and start issuing claims for breach of contract until we know there's going to be damages that flow. I don't think that makes any sense. I think what happened in, in Brook Street and Economical was that, um, you know, they waited quite a bit after the litigation had been ongoing for a while. Um, it wasn't a case where um, the, cl- the, the claim was issued two years after the date of loss and then we, the, the lawyers moved quickly to, um, to deal with this right away. They had waited throughout the litigation a bit longer than, than maybe they could have. Um, so I don't think, you know, some people look at this case and think, okay, the sky is falling. You know, I, I don't think the sky is falling, and I don't recommend that we all go out and start, you know, issuing claims the minute we find out there's a, a breach of contract. Um, it doesn't really make sense um, until we know there's going to be any loss that flows from it. Because what if, you know, people, sometimes people slip and fall and don't sue, uh, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, absolutely. Um, but I'm just thinking, is it more damages-based then? So it's based on the severity of the accident. So if you know she's got a serious injury, mm-hmm. you should be looking at that contract early on, or is it, you know? Or- I, I think always in any of your investigations involving plazas, involving multiple parties, you should be trying to get the contracts earlier on, even if it seems small. Because we all have these claims where we think they're small and it should be small. And the next thing you know, two years later, the the individual says they have chronic pain and can never work again. You know, sure. it seems to be 50% of my cases these days. So it, it's hard to know when... 
you know, you're dealing with the initial investigation. What is this thing going to turn into? Um, I'm a bit, bit cynical as an insurance lawyer, you know, but some people, you know, legitimately heal much slower than others or they're more susceptible to um, developing mental health problems as a result of an accident. So, you know, when you're doing an investigation and you're thinking, okay, this is just going to be a small little thing. I'll just take some pictures. You know, it's, it's hard to know that at the beginning. Sure. And I'm sure you're familiar with the Deerhurst case, right? Absolutely. The slip and fall with the Deerhurst. Yeah. And she actually refused attention. She actually got and walked on her own bare feet mm-hmm. to the room and she fell then, right? I mean, she refused assistance. Mm-hmm. And still, this whole big claim falls out of it because she ends up with a... a brain injury, from what I understand, right? Yeah, that case, uh, I, I heard about that case when I was up in the Barrie area. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Yeah. So, yeah. and again, there was a whole covenant to insure issue with that as well. Yeah, and, and you know, when you don't um, follow the covenant to insure, you know, and there's a huge injury that comes out of it, you know, the actual insured who didn't follow through on the covenant can end up spending a huge amount of money defending and at the end of the day they may have to indemnify as well Um, because the duty to defend is a bit different than the duty to indemnify you know the test is a bit different but you know it can end up being a fairly significant matter. Can we talk about the test between the two? Sure so um, you know most uh, insurance policies the duty to defend is very broad so if there's anything in the claim that would be covered under the insurance policy. And there's also claims that aren't covered. It doesn't really matter. The insurance company needs to defend all of it. Um, so similar analysis would apply for an additional insured. You know, Just because you're named on the policy doesn't mean you're, you're necessarily going to be covered for everything at the end of the day. You're only covered by what the policy has. So um, you know, most policies cover negligence. Sure. Um, so negligence is often going to be covered, but sometimes, you know, in an additional insured situation, you may have a contract that says, okay, we're going to defend you in any lawsuits, but you might still actually be responsible for your own negligence. Um, and then in, in that situation... And that's a misnomer sometimes for them, right? They think because they've got that that coverage that they're covered for everything and yeah. not, not their own negligence. Yeah, so, and that's when you go back to the original contract documents because um, sometimes they say strange things. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in terms of who who's responsible for what. And, you know, there's case law now, and it's an Ontario Court of Appeal case, that you can actually contract out of your own negligence with someone. So you can get contracts in the commercial context where, you know, you have to add me as your additional insured and you're responsible for your own negligence and mine. And, and as long as people agree with that, um, you can do that apparently now in Ontario. And, and there, was only, in, there was only a recent case that dealt with that. And I think they actually talked about that case on a, another podcast. Yeah, we did. Yeah. Yeah. But so I, it's unbelievable that that even exists. Yeah. And, and uh, you should be telling all your insureds to put that in their contract. Absolutely. And then you can <laughs> charge less in premiums. But, you know, what I'm seeing, and I think it's the disconnect between the litigation bar and the corporate bar is you know, the corporate bar who drafts the contracts themselves, um, you know, they don't necessarily always read the, you know, the cases involving litigation. So I think the reason why you haven't seen, you know, this huge increase in people writing into the contracts that you're responsible for my negligence is it hasn't been, you know, completely filtered through the entire, um, the entire uh, corporate lawyer group in Ontario that, you know, yes, you can do that and it will actually be upheld. Yes. So I think maybe we'll go that way when people listen to uh, the podcast and start yeah, reading the cases. But yeah. um, and, and I'm giving a presentation internally to our leasing lawyers um, in a couple of weeks, and that case will dr- definitely be on the agenda. So you might start seeing it coming down the pipe. So let's continue back. Sorry, I didn't yep. mean to bring you off there. So no let's worries. talk uh, about that the difference in the contracts there or in the. Um, Oh, duty to defend. Duty to defend and duty to indemnify. Yeah, so the duty to defend, uh, all defense costs have to be paid. It's not as if, um, you know, let's say I'm sued in in negligence and breach of contract. Um, You know, it's not as if you only pay half of my defense costs. As long as there's a claim in there that's partially covered, you know, you you pay the the defense costs. All of them. 
Regardless. All of them. All of them. What and if there's only one thing that triggers duty to defend out of 20? Doesn't doesn't matter. <laughs> Usually. Really? Yeah, you have to defend and um which is a pain because, you know, sometimes you'll have a, a crazy claim where negligence is just sort of thrown in for coverage. You know, maybe for coverage. Um but, you know, when you're looking at it from a coverage perspective, um, you're able to take a quick look at the claim and say, okay, you know, even though they use the word negligence, is this really a negligence claim? So sometimes you can deny coverage on the basis that, you know, when you actually look at the pleading and look behind the pleading, it, it's not a negligence claim. It's just been drafted uh, to try to get coverage. So, so there's, there's ways to deal with that. And, and typically what you do is you get coverage counsel involved first before you get defense counsel involved. Um, but yeah, duty to defend is much broader. Okay. Duty to indemnify is is just at the end of the day, either when you know the case goes to trial, um, and there's a decision made about you know uh, how much is going to be paid and why. Uh, it's the why that's important. So um, let's say there's an exclusion under the policy um, if for injuries made by an employee of yours or something like that. And, you know, there's a dispute about whether or not they were on duty at the time, you know. And um, at the end of the day, the judge says, um, you know, yep, they were on duty. This is what the damages are. You know, maybe there's not coverage because there's an exclusion that applies. Yeah. So um, in those cases, what happens at the early stages is you end up um, defending, um, but sometimes under a reservation of rights. So you'll, you'll let the insured know, usually in a standard letter that most, <laughs> most companies sure. have, yeah. that you know, we're, we're defending you, we may not have an obligation to indemnify. Um, if there's a specific coverage issue that comes up and you're aware of up front, it's often in the letter as well. Your work. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so um, at the end of the... But then, you know, as a practical matter, we all know that... 95 plus percent of cases will settle before trial. So uh, you can get into situations, and I just settled a case, you know, this week where, um, you know, arguably, arguably there wasn't going to be a duty to indemnify, uh, but there could be. And, you know, the insurer is the one that's still driving the bus in terms of the litigation. So um, if you end up just settling and paying out, you know, you're basically acknowledging, you know, that either you had a duty to indemnify or you're using a business decision to, you know, you want to close your file and, and not have to pay for a five, six week trial. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so let's talk about the possibility of seeing a covenant between a landlord and a condo owner. Is there ever going to be a case or do you think that that's a possibility with regards to, um, you know, damages to, like a covenant to insure would would apply in there. So yeah, like you can imagine a situation where um, you have a condo, you know, a condominium corporation, and you have individual tenants within the condominium corporation. Um, you know, condo laws is really complex, and you know, you you have now popping up even around Ottawa firms that specialize only in in condo law. So, you know, you can imagine a situation, you know, where each individual unit holder, for example, may need to have a covenant to insure the actual condo corporation. So you can get in disputes like that. I think you could see that. Um, you're also getting into these really complex developments where you have an office building, which is also a condo, which is also a retail space downstairs. And, you know, you can imagine um, if a person goes into the premises and they're going to eat at the Pizza Hut and then they're going to go upstairs and visit their friend in the condo and then there's, a, you know, a, a fall somewhere around the way because there's, you know, a step that hasn't been installed properly. And then, you know, you can see the plaintiff's lawyer just suing everybody. Yeah. And, you know, in that situation where there's so many different parties, even now there would be complex agreements about who's responsible for different areas and, and I bet you there are covenants to ensure um, it's just you know in the residential context where you have individual individual unit holders um, where you know you're still kind of not seeing it all the time 
um, in terms of a covenant to insure. So I imagine there's going to be a case in that context. Um, Sooner than later? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I haven't done research on this uh, this week, but I bet you if you searched on Canley, which is where we go for most of our up-to-date cases, I bet you there's been cases involving condos already. All right. um, Thank you for everything you've given me today. But I do have one last question. Let's just talk about this covenant to insure. And what about where, uh, say, somebody needs to insure or be listed as an additional insured for for something, and then the they agree to it, but then it turns out they can't even insure you for that that actual thing that they've asked to be insured for. Yeah, so that's my commercial uh, colleagues' um, worst nightmare because they're not experts in insurance. You know, they draft the documents based on what their clients tell them. And uh, they often will say, you know, I'm not able to tell you whether or not this coverage is even out there. So before you sign this document, you should go speak to a broker to see if this is even possible. Um, You know, so you can imagine a case where in the agreement, they want you to uh, add somebody to an additional insured, and it might be like an environmental policy. And maybe the types of policies being offered or the, or the types of p- policies being offered within the person's price range won't allow you to have additional insureds for, for whatever reason. So um, in that circumstance where um, that type of insurance wouldn't even uh, exist, you could get into an interesting case and, and potentially argue that it's not actually a breach of contract because it would be impossible to... Um, to follow through with that that obligation. Um, so it, I could see that coming up as a defense to a breach of contract claim in terms of, well, you know, even if we went out and tried to have you added as an additional insured, um, we would have been denied coverage or it wouldn't have been possible. Um, From the insurer's appetite, you mean? Like the insurance company mm-hmm. didn't even offer that type of coverage? Yeah. So that would be the defense? You, you could try to use that as a defense. Um, I don't know how far it will go. You know, it's certainly an interesting argument because um, if you're obligated under a contract to do something, but due to, you know, both par- neither party's fault, it's impossible to do it. Um, sometimes you can argue that, you know, the term's been frustrated, for example. Sure. Um, so that would be an interesting argument. You know, more often, more likely what would happen um, down the road is that, um, the argument would be made that, okay, well, you shouldn't have agreed to add me and therefore you should just pay my defense costs anyway. Sure. Personally. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that may be the more likely outcome, but, um, you know, it, it's interesting because, you know, I think a court may may say, well, you know, the parties should have looked into this before they agreed to it. And who are we going to... Uh, make pay for the the fact that neither party looked into it. Are we going to make the the party seeking the defense costs, or the or the party who should have added them as the additional insured? So, you know, more likely just based on the equities, they'll they'll try to protect the innocent party. Sure. Um, but no, it's another another tricky little uh, area you can get into in these, and, and that's why we tell. Uh, our, my commercial lawyer colleagues always tell their clients that before you agree to something in an insurance clause, you know, speak to your broker and make sure what you're agreeing to is actually going to be possible. Yeah, absolutely. Now, do you do your commercial guys? Do they ask their clients to make sure they've gotten the deck pages and been named? Is that something that you guys kind of follow up on? Um, in some cases, for some clients, yes. Um, some clients, uh, just like insurance companies, you know, they don't want to pay us to do more than, you know, what you need a legal, what a lawyer to do. But, you know, in those circumstances, I think what the best practice would be is, okay, you know, contract signed, you know, remember you're supposed to follow up on these items, yeah. right? And then we kind of put the ball in the client's court to actually do it. Um, and then you just kind of hope the client did it. Did it. Yeah, because uh, once you know, a lot of times we'll just get hired to to draft the document, and and that's the end of it, and, and, move you, on, and yeah, you don't really sure. know what happens, and then that's when, you know, a few years down the road, litigation happens, and you discover, okay, so you never did all these things that we told you to do. Okay. Yeah, you know, 
Yeah, and now you're coming back to me asking me why there's a problem. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, that can happen, and, um, and that's why we have litigation lawyers. Absolutely. So. <laughs> so it goes from the commercial side over to the litigation exactly. side. Exactly. The commercial side is often our best clients. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, well, thank you very much for your time today, Erin. I really appreciate it, and uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll see you soon. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of WP Radio. We had such a great time recording this episode, so we hope you enjoyed listening as well. Please check in next month for another episode, and if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out at me at terry at oiaa.com. Thanks, everyone, and we'll talk to you soon. Are you an insurance adjuster actively adjusting claims? If so, we want you. The OIAA is a professional organization currently consisting of 1,800 claims professionals with its main focus on education, networking, and knowledge. We promote and maintain a high standard of ethics among insurance claims professionals. We work together with government departments and officials, governing bodies, members of other organizations, insurance companies, associations and fraternities, as well as the general public in matters connected with the business of insurance and insurance claims. We recognize the value of networking for education, advocacy, advancing professional standards, and offering mutual support. We provide networking, professional development, inside industry news, and support to insurance adjusters across Ontario. By joining our network of active and associate members, you receive a direct introduction to other members, our Without Prejudice magazine delivered to your door, discounts for all social and professional development events, knowledge from mixing with seasoned, experienced adjusters and with new up-and-coming professionals, and satisfaction knowing that you are an active participant in shaping claims adjustment and risk management services in Ontario. Most compelling of all is the price. Just for $50 a year plus HST, the value far outweighs the fee. Can you afford not to join us? please visit our website to become a member and to review our calendar of events at www.oiaa.com.